we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, you know, if I were on a desert island and I could only take one book with me, it would be Matthew. <laughs> and if I only could take three chapters out of Matthew, it would be 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon is the most concentrated uh, teaching from Jesus that you're going to get anywhere in the Bible. It's all there. It was probably an early catechism of the church, and so it is arranged in such a way that it makes perfect sense. It has, it has logic, it has form, it moves through. And so we've been doing this, I think this is the sixth Sunday that we've been doing this, and we're still in the middle of chapter five, but we're going kind of slow, but that's all right. In fact, what I wanted to do today is just kind of quickly recap. We said that in the very first part of the sermon the, called the Beatitudes, what we had that Jesus is giving us is a portrait of the finished product. What does a person who has become kingdom, remember kingdom is not a place, kingdom is the quality of life. Kingdom is the attitude of those who have these qualities, these traits that these eight Beatitudes laid out. And they had to do with humility. It had to do with perseverance. It had to do with purity of heart, which is just trying to stay connected. All of these things contributed to this person who had become kingdom. Then the next stop was, what is the effect that becoming kingdom has on the individual? Well, kind of counterintuitively, it opens you up to, to more difficulties. It opens you up to the, the, uh, the resistance you're going to get from the people first in your own family, those you're closest to, as you're moving into new directions that they don't understand, and then to the larger community as well. It also just opens you up to the world's suffering in a way that your awareness didn't cover before. It makes us more sensitive. It makes us more open. But then what is the effect on those around this person, both those close and those in the community. And he used those two great metaphors of salt and light. The preservation of life, the fertilization of new life, the vitalization of life that salt represents, and then the, the clarity, the harmony, the unity that light represents. And all of this just as a warm-up, because the next step is how do we get there? How do we become kingdom? How do we move into this space where all of these things start taking place? And last week we started because what he has given us is nothing short than the need for an absolute and fundamental shift in worldview. Before we can go any further, before we can move down this road toward kingdom, we need to change everything we think we know. Because the way that we as humans just live in the world is antithetical to what the Spirit is bringing us. Our ways of moving, our ways of surviving, our ways of choosing, need, needfully so, across the physical world, is going to be in conflict with the Spirit. That's why Jesus always speaks in such paradox. He's always trying to get us to break down what it is we think we know. And the biggest difficulty with breaking down what we think we know is that it's not conscious. Not a lot of it, some of it is. Most of it and the deepest and strongest beliefs that we have are unconscious. They're kind of like your bones. Think about your bones for a second. You know, it's funny, when I was hearing someone speak about models, they would say that they had good bones. Marion likes to watch a show, a show called Good Bones. It's about houses that have good bones, right? 
It's all about the bones. The bones make all the difference. You know, you're going to cover your bones with muscle and skin and hair and makeup and all those things. But if the bones aren't there, Camry isn't going to like you. There's just, that's, sorry, just that's the way it is. Got to have the bones. The bones that we never see, or hopefully never see, are really what give us our shape, give us our form. The skeletal structure is really the figure that we're going to cut. Now, it's like that with our unconscious thoughts. We don't see them. We're not even aware that they're there. But like the bones, they give us our shape. They give us our structure. They are really what's driving the bus, if you think about it. We think our heads are driving the bus. We think that uh, you know, we are in control consciously, but really we're not. It's those unconscious thoughts. And Jesus recognizes that. And he realizes that it's not a straightforward proposition to change your bones. It's not a straightforward proposition to change your unconscious thoughts. You've got to come at it indirectly. So this process of enlightenment, of becoming light as well as salt, takes us through a process of, we said, endarkenment, where you have to go at things in a circuitous way. We can't go in a straight line because we have to get down into this underground material, bring it up into the light so that we can see it and we can change it and we can move forward. So what Jesus is doing is taking through us through this process. He's going to be breaking our bones. He's going to be breaking down our unconscious thinking. He's going to be moving us toward this radical shift in worldview. And for the balance of chapter 5, he's going to start with law, and he's going to be working through it. And why would he start with law? Because one of the deepest assumptions, core beliefs that we have, is about law and justice and fairness. That's just coded into our DNA. We think about things in terms of being fair. Everything has to be fair. Everything has to be balanced. We think about things in terms of reward and punishment. Reward for things that we do well, that is lawfully, and punishment for things that we do not well, unlawfully. And we think that's the way it is, and we impute that same system to God and his relationship with us. And the church has fostered that. But if we're really going to go where Jesus is trying to take us, then we really need to break that. And I'm going to ask John, John, can you cue the rain, please? (laughs) That's going to confuse people on the recording. The the rain track got left on there for a sec. So here we are. Jesus is going to take us through Matthew 5, where he's going to, and really through the whole of his ministry, he is working to change our ideas and our assumptions about law, about justice, about punishment, and about love. Because until we can do that, we're never going to be able to get where he's trying to get us to go. He is trying to get us to be able to see our relationship with each other, with God's Spirit, through the Father's eyes. Not through our own, and not through our societies, but through the Father's eyes, which is going to be 180 degrees different than the way that the world works, the way that we're used to things working. And this is going to, if it's not outraging you, if it's not really taxing your ability to just feel like this is okay, what Jesus is trying to show us, then you're not going deep enough. You're not letting this really get to you. Years ago, it had to have been close to 15 years ago now, but I still remember it so well. A woman asked me to visit her son in jail. He had been, uh, he had been incarcerated uh, for drug use, and so 
she asked, would you please go down there and just talk to him? She was just desperate for anything that could possibly get him moving in a different direction. So I went down there, and I don't know how many of you have done prison visits, but it's kind of like you see in the movies, you know? It, it's just so interesting. It's just this different world completely. And you walk into the, in, in, at least in the Orange County system, I walked into this giant, um, you know, waiting room. Um, all there were were metal benches, and they're all bolted to the floor. And there's this long row of doors on one side, each with a number over it. And you go in there, and of course, you had done all you needed to do at the front desk with the officer there, and you just wait. And when your name is called, they'll give you two numbers. They give you a door number, and they give you a window number. And so you get up, and everybody gets up with you, and you go through your door. And then inside the door is just this long corridor with glass windows on each side. Again, bolted down metal seats in front of the, of the windows with the telephone handset and just small little acoustic panels between each, but there's no privacy. I mean, you can see over them, you can see around them, you're seeing everything, and you're waiting for the inmates to come in on the other side of the glass and uh, in their orange jumpsuits. And there was like a 45-minute wait. So once you've got in from the waiting room, you're sitting in that seat and you're just waiting for your inmate to show up at the same numbered window. And so I'm just sitting there, I'm just looking around. And the thing that was so mo most amazing to me is that this was a prison. This is not the ideal place for you to be visiting your loved one. And yet there were no tears, there was no sadness. The people that were there, the young women, they were all dressed up, you know, makeup, hair, nice clothes. And there was parents, obviously, maybe grandparents. There was children, there was laughter, there was animated conversation. You know, and there were some subdued conversations as well. There was a pastor there, obviously, who was encouraging someone. I could hear all the conversations that were going on, mixture of Spanish and English. But it was a different atmosphere than I was expecting. And I was sitting there, and I'm still waiting after all this time, and the person next to me got up and left so I could see the next window over. And there was a young woman there, all you know, dressed up, and she's talking to, obviously, a boyfriend or a husband on the other side of the glass. And the way that she was looking at him, the tone of her voice, the way that she was talking and gesturing, she could have been across a white tablecloth with a candle and in the nicest restaurant that you can imagine. There was no sense of where she was or that she was talking to her man in an orange jumpsuit. There was no sense of whatever offense he had committed or whatever victims he had harmed in the commission of that. It was just her eye contact with him, expressing her love for him, continued love for him. And it was extraordinary to me. It was as if she was orange colorblind. She just didn't see it. And if you think about it, it's just like the father of the prodigal son, right? The offense that his son committed was as if it didn't even exist when he sees him coming down the road home. And he just runs out to meet him and practically strangles him with a bear hug and can't stop kissing him. The older brother's outraged, but not the father. The father of the prodigal and the girlfriend or wife of this young man in the orange jumpsuit were both orange colorblind. They didn't see the offenses. They didn't see what it is that had happened. They only saw their loved one, their beloved, now, as you're sitting there, is this fair? Does it sound fair to you? Because what about those victims? What about what it is that they did? Is there no consequence for that? Well, they're in jail, so there's a consequence there. But what about in the loved one's mind? 
The elder brother was saying, what about me? This isn't fair. I've been here towing the line, obeying everything that you set up for me to do, being the good son. And you never threw a party for me. What is it you're doing over here? This isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't just. And they're absolutely right. It isn't fair. And it isn't just. But right? God and the girl are orange colorblind. They're not looking at the faults. They're not looking at the offenses. They're only seeing the eyes of their loved one. It's not fair. It's not just. But what Jesus is trying to tell us is that God's love is not just. Huh? God's love is not fair. It's deliberately unjust, but always in the direction and always to the advantage of the beloved. This blows our minds. This is so difficult. Even if your head is going up and down right now and you're saying that you agree with that characterization of God's love, I guarantee you, your bones are twitching. I guarantee you that there is resistance there because it doesn't feel right. It just doesn't seem like it's supposed to be this way. The church, our society, emphasizes justice, obviously, obedience, and law. I've heard, when I first got into the evangelical um, branch of the, of the church, I remember asking these types of questions. And someone said, God's holiness is so pure that it would burn up anything less pure that came into its presence. This was their way of trying to say, look, it's not God's fault. He's not choosing to reject someone who is sinful. But his holiness is such that it would just burn to dust anyone who came in that wasn't completely pure in his presence. Okay, so I'm kind of compute that one. Okay, how does that exactly work? So I'm thinking, does that mean that God is actually a slave to his own holiness? Can God not choose to love the way God wants to because his holiness is such that it just can't tolerate the presence of anything that is not absolutely perfect? How does this work? And if God can love the way that he chooses, which I'm assuming every one of us would say, well, of course he can, how can he do that and still be just at the same time? Because isn't God supposed to be just? How is all this working Hopefully you can start to see the dilemma that this creates. When we try to get ourselves intellectually into the ballpark of what perfect love must be, what perfect love must look like, what this good news is all about, it's going to create all of this, this dust. How can God love completely, fully, unconditionally? How can he be orange colorblind the way Jesus is always talking about his love and models it himself? and be just at the same time. There's a concept that I came into, and it's getting to be a long time ago, 25 years ago or something like that, but when I first started to get my head wrapped around this, it made all the difference in the world. It, it was just so foundational. And this is the difference between the macro and the micro. Now, the macro is going to be three or more for our purposes. It's going to be groups and can go up to nations and the globe, and it can come down to churches. It can come down to households, but it's not one-on-one. One-on-one, -on -one, we're going to call the micro. That's going to be the small. That's going to be the one-on-one -on -one individual relationship. But any of you who have watched children or raised children, as soon as you add the third child 
the dynamic completely changes. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Two can play one way. You add the third and everything changes. Now it's all about fairness. Everything has to be exactly fair. And now you have to have rules that the group can use to be able to survive. As soon as you have a group, even a group this size, we have to have rules. We have to have ways of doing things that we all agree on or else the group can't survive. Therefore, the highest good in the macro in any group setting is justice. Everything being balanced, everything being as fair as possible because without that, the group dissolves, the group dies. But in the micro, the highest good one-on-one is mercy and compassion. And this is the mistake we always make. We think there's some way that we can legislate our compassion in the micro, and we can make that the law of our land. But as soon as you do that, you become unjust, you become unfair, and it's only a matter of time before you lose the group. And if you try to bring your justice into micro-relationships, well, then you're just abusive. You're intolerant. Love looks different in different contexts. And we have to get this. Love looks like justice in the group, but love looks like mercy and compassion to the individual. And once you start to understand this, then you start to see how God can be the absolute unconditional lover and just at the same time. Because God never relates to us individually in the macro. He relates to us in the micro. He is always relating to us in terms of mercy and compassion. And at the same time, the group has to have the rules in order to survive so that each one of us has the roof over our head, has the playing field, has the home in which to be able to live and survive and thrive so that we can experience the micro-relationship that God has for us individually. It works at both levels at the same time. The church is a macro institution. It's got to have rules or it doesn't survive. Paul was administering groups, institutions, macro. And so his message looks one way. Jesus was always talking to an individual. His message looks a different way. It's still love, but we have to be able to make the shift between the two. The rules of the church are many, but God only has one rule. And that's unity. That's connection. We can call it love, but it's love in action. It's what love looks like in relationship. The beloveds connect in mercy and compassion and unfairness. That's the way it works. When you really love someone, you're willing to be unfair with them. You're willing to give them the advantage. You're willing to give them grace. Always defined as unmerited favor, right? This is what love looks like in the macro, in the micro. And it's what we all want, isn't it? Right? Don't we want to be loved and accepted even though we're still wearing our orange jumpsuit? (laughs) Isn't that just human nature? We still want to know that we've got some kind of connection even though we know that we've broken the rules, even though we know that we may have hurt someone. We want to know that there's still a way back, that that love still exists. We want someone to be looking at us the way that girl was looking at her boyfriend or husband across that glass, even though we know we're wearing our orange jumpsuit. That's what we really want, and that's the gospel. 
What else makes good news if not that, right? That is the good news. That someone is looking at us that way. That God is looking at us that way. Jesus is trying to change our bones. He's trying to get us from the deepest level to begin shedding the notion that God's acceptance is conditional on our performance, on our lawfulness, because that's the way we roll. That's what we've understood. That's the way the world works, and that's the way the church has taught us. And so we still are on that hamster wheel trying to be good enough for God. And Jesus is saying, you already are. Yeah, that doesn't mean you're going to stay there and you're not going to try to improve. That doesn't mean that once you start to understand how you're loved, really understand that that love isn't going to then be showered upon everyone who comes in your vicinity. You will be transformed from the inside out. But until we know that that love exists in such a fashion, we're just following rules. And following rules is not going to take us where we want to go. Jesus right here at the beginning of Matthew 5, he tells us that the law is only going to last until heaven and earth pass away. Okay? So there's a, there's a shelf life to the law. When heaven and earth pass away, now we are automatically going to think that's at the end of time, right? When everything gets rolled up, like in Revelation. But that's not what the verb means there in Aramaic. In Aramaic, a bar means to cross a limit or a boundary. So literally, when heaven and earth cross their limits and merge into one, then there's no more law. The law only exists until heaven and earth merge into one. In fact, the purpose of the law is to make heaven and earth merge into one, to pass away in our hearts. That's what it's there for. It's there to keep us in context. It's there to keep us in the group. It's there to show us how to relate to each other until heaven and earth merge and we see the unity and the oneness for ourselves. And then we don't need the law anymore. The law is now written on our hearts. Very different. If you think about it this way, the, law, the function of the law, from Jesus' point of view, is to disappear. The function of the law is to disappear once it's completed its purpose, which is to show us this oneness that we actually have in each other. And then he says at Matthew 5.20, you can take a look if you have it, if you have your inserts in front of you. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, that would have been mind-blowing to anybody listening to him at the time because nobody could surpass the righteousness, the legality of the lawyers themselves, the scribes and the Pharisees. There was no way to do that. Jesus is saying, you can't play with them on their field. You will lose. Not only will you lose, but you'll also lose any sense of God's presence and love it's getting out of that boat and getting into another boat entirely that it's going to take you where you want to go. Take a look at this paraphrase that I did, trying to bring in the ideas from the Aramaic. When you see the purpose of the law as one with God's desire and one and the same with your desire within, when you begin to fulfill the purpose of the law and not just follow rules, when you value others more than yourself, when you see God in every breath, face, and moment, you are already kingdom by definition and not an instant before. What he's telling us is that we need to exceed law and justice as the be-all and end-all of our relationship with God. 
exceed it, move beyond it, all the way to love. Why? Because we can only really trust, believe in, and trust God's love when we practice it. It seems too good to be true. It seems impossible until we can actually become orange colorblind ourselves and look beyond the faults, look beyond the differences, and still connect, still be one with, then we understand how God can be orange colorblind to us in our faults when we know that we don't deserve it. We can only believe and trust God's love when we practice it, and we can't practice it until we graduate just mere rule following. As long as we think that rule following is it, we are going to be blocked. There's a glass ceiling. We can't just follow rules. In fact, we're even going to have to break some if we want to actually move where Jesus is trying to take us. You know, here's a shorthand that we do in here and have done several times. So some of you have probably heard it. And I'll ask the question, is lying always wrong? And you'll process that for a while. You know, initially... I mean, you guys are also conditioned. You know what's going on here. But initially, it's like, well, yeah, it's wrong. Of course it's wrong. It says so right in the Ten Commandments. It's wrong. We're not supposed to lie. We've been hearing that since we were little kids. And then I'll say, yeah, okay. So now you're in 1940s Germany with Jews in the attic and the Gestapo's at your door. What's the right thing to do? See, all our ethics are situational. The law is situational. It is not an absolute instrument. Jesus is trying to get this across to us. Just like the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, it's not absolute. The purpose of the law is to preserve life, to vitalize life, and to bring the sense of God's presence and spirit into every moment. Sometimes a lie is the only way to do that. How do you preserve the lives that are in your attic? You lie. Does this dress make me look fat? You lie. <laughs> to preserve the relationship. <laughs> from, the, from the sublime to the ridiculous. This is the point, right? It's not about the laws themselves. It's about fulfilling the purpose of the law. The rules, the law, they're guidelines. They're instruction for the macro. The law is only fulfilled in love, in the micro. All of this is part of Jesus' teaching in these few brief lines. Yeah, we're reading between the lines. Yeah, we're extrapolating here. But think about it. How else could it be so? How else could it be true? Jesus is always teaching within the context of the micro, within the context of kingdom, within the context of one-on-one -on -one relationships. He's not dealing with institutions. And every time someone brings him a question to deal with an institution, hey, should we really be paying taxes to Rome? He just flips that blanket off and brings it right back to the micro. Yeah, if this coin has Caesar's inscription on it, then give it to him. It's his. But make sure you give to God what is God's. Anytime you try to corner Jesus into a macro statement, he's not going there. He'll bring it right back to the micro because that's his mission. He's trying to turn heart lights on. And so he's talking about mercy and compassion and unconditional love in a way that won't work in the macro where justice is needed. But if we don't have it in the micro then all the justice in the world isn't going to take us where he's trying to get us to go. The law is only fulfilled as it disappears into the compassion 
and this orange colorblind love that we finally can find with each other, exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees, is moving beyond just this macro idea of law and obedience. Now, even if this sounds right, as I said, I guarantee you it's going to take a while, especially if you're hearing this for the first time or even if you've been hearing it for years. I mean, I can tell you there's still stuff, you know, as long as I've been trying to deal with this and assimilate this, there's still stuff that just doesn't seem fair to me, just doesn't seem right to me, you know, and it can rankle me. The question is, yeah, it's okay if it's doing that on the macro level, but can I take an individual who has that point of view that I think is so wrong and be able to look right past their jumpsuit and just see a fellow human being and love them and treat them the way that I want to be treated and loved? This is what Jesus is talking about. It's not that we don't have principles. It's not that we don't have passionate principles. It's not that we don't work for causes. But can we see someone on the other side of the picket line as a fellow human being that we can love, that we can connect with, right? That's what this is all about. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. And he's going to illustrate this now, outrageously illustrate this for the rest of this chapter in trying to redefine the way that people look at the law, breaking it down for them in six different ways that were bedrock to their culture and their society, blowing their minds, breaking their bones, right? And then he's going to, in chapter 6, he's going to take the same sledgehammer to their sense of righteousness, what that was all about. And then in chapter 7, he's going to take the same sledgehammer to the idea of just daily interactions and how we relate to each other and what that all means. He's going to be breaking this down. He's trying to do some bone reshaping for us and trying to get us to understand that if we can hold less tightly to some of these core beliefs, these unconscious principles, then things can start happening in the direction of kingdom. Let's take a look. There are three principles that I think, these are my extractions, but I think these are three principles that are bedrock to what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And you can look in your handouts again. The first one is this. Keeping the law, and we said this before, means fulfilling the purpose of the law, not merely following rules. And the purpose of the law is love. The purpose of the law is to bring unity and connection and preservation of, lo- of life back into the group setting. All right? So keeping the law means fulfilling the purpose, not just following the rules. At Matthew 5.20 that we already read, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying... It's not about following the rules. The Pharisees were all about following the rules. It's not just about that. It's about exceeding that, moving beyond that. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. When you think about those Sabbath controversies, right? The purpose of the Sabbath was to bring refreshment back into the week, to reconnect with God's presence after a week of all the details and everything. Think about your work week, all the craziness that goes on. I mean, how distracted are you during that week? You're moving from task to task, from noise to noise. To have one day where you stop, you turn that off, and you refresh and you relax, and you bring back into your life a sense of God's presence again, that's what the Sabbath is all about. The Pharisees made it a nightmare of hundreds of rules that had to be followed in order to be lawful on the Sabbath. 
adding more stress, more pressure, more distraction to the people than they had during the week when they didn't have to worry about all the Sabbath junk, right? And Jesus ritually goes through and breaks every one of their oral traditions, not the written tradition. He's finding refreshment in the healing that he's doing unlawfully, according to the Pharisees, on the Sabbath. But he breaks those rules on purpose, and he breaks them in specific ways, on purpose, that specifically break their oral tradition that was added on to the written law. He's doing it, everything and everything that he can possibly do to get the people to break their bones of understanding, to break through those unconscious thoughts that have been pounded into them since they could even think as children. Keeping the law means fulfilling the purpose of the law, not just following rules. Second, obedience and disobedience are inward functions, not outward functions. They're matters of the heart. They've been so conditioned, we've been so conditioned, that obedience is about following the rules, these external rules from the outside in, as if somehow this, this connection with God is going to seep through by osmosis as we just keep following rules. But obedience and disobedience are inward. Look at this saying of Jesus. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And the son answered, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they, the Pharisees, who had come to test Jesus, said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. What is he saying there? The Pharisees thought that they were the ones in God's tightest favor because they were the ones who were the most lawful, religiously pure, followed all the purity codes, all the dietary codes, followed everything to the letter, and they thought that made them, including their ethnic history, their pedigree, right, as Jews, they thought that made them God's sons and daughters. Jesus has nothing to do with that. Obedience and disobedience is an inward function. It's a condition of the heart, And even some poor prostitute or tax collector who in your eyes is breaking the law, and they are, they still have more compassion and more mercy that connects them with their God than you can demonstrate in your entire lives. It's an inward function, not an outward function. In another controversy where they were coming to Jesus because he wasn't following their purity codes or their dietary codes. He says, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a person, but what proceeds out of the mouth. That's what defiles a person. Later on in Mark, they make the comment, thus he declared all foods clean. Do you know what a slap in the face that is for a Jew? They have kosher. They have things they can't eat and can't eat. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you eat. (laughs) It matters what's in your heart that comes out of your mouth. That matters. That shows you who you are with your God. Obedience and disobedience are inward functions, not outward. And third, outward forms and rituals mean nothing. Nothing if the heart is not right. 
The law is fulfilled relationally and ethically, not legally and not ceremonially. Every time we participate in a sacrament here at the effect, whether it's baptism or we've, we've christened babies and we've, uh, we've ordained, we always make the, the statement that any sacrament is an outward expression of an inward transformation. It's an outward expression of an inward transformation. We don't give, <laughs> I always like to say, Oz didn't give nothing to the tin man that he didn't already have, right? We don't give anything to the baptizee, to the person who's being ordained, to the person who's being married. <clears throat> we give them nothing. We have a ceremony that is an expression of what they're bringing to the table. If someone is baptized, it can mean everything or nothing. It depends on what has happened in their hearts. And it's that way with every sacrament we do. Any ritual act that we do, it's about what happens internally. It is great to celebrate with the community. It is great to be able to share in that. But spiritually, it's all about the individual. Have they connected their heart with God's heart? Then something is happening, and we're celebrating that. And this is echoed throughout the entire Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This doesn't just start with Jesus. Sometimes we discount the Old Testament because God looks like such an ogre back then. But that thread of who God really is is echoed in the prophets as well. And they say this over and over again. Make the distinction between you just following the sacrificial system, you just following the law, and actually connecting with God. Look at Hosea. For I desired mercy... I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Jesus echoes that at Matthew 9. Micah, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The Lord has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? That's it. Inside out. Yeah, still go to the temple. Practice what your community practices. But if you haven't done that first, what have you gained? What has happened here? Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, this is Jesus now, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. What could be more common sense than that? And yet, at the deepest level, we're still legal beings. We still chafe at that because we think all we have to do is do the form, and then we're wiped clean. Go into the confessional, and you come out clean. And yet, have we fixed what is wrong in our relationships? Have we used the mercy and compassion of God's love to make our relationships all that they should be? All of our macro tools that we use, justice, law, obedience, conformance, ritual, doctrine, won't and can't get us into kingdom, cannot do that. It can't transform us from the inside out. 
It can keep a roof over our head. It can keep us in the playing field in the ballpark. And that's important. We need the law until we don't need it anymore. (laughs) We need the law until finally we have crossed this limit, this border, this threshold of our own into the unity that God really is all about. When heaven and earth merge in our spirit, then the law disappears. But the law on its own can't get us where we want to go. It's like the elder brother of the prodigal has to change the unconscious assumptions that he's making about what's right and wrong in family before he can just go to the party. These thoughts about fairness, these thoughts about obedience, that prisoner's colorblind girlfriend (laughs) understands this at a level that we who have studied so much in the church do not. Now, we could criticize her, right? We can critique her. We can even ridicule her. We can say that she's foolish. We can say that she's codependent, right? We can say that she's an enabler. We can say that she's a doormat, maybe. And maybe she is. Maybe all those things are defects of her character. And maybe the relationship that she has with this man is toxic in some way. But I'll tell you what. I would give anything for my woman to look at me through the glass and pass my orange jumpsuit at that moment, the way she was looking at him. We have to start to let go of some of these biases and prejudices and assumptions that are just keeping us from the level of love and connection that we so desperately need and want. To get this first inkling that God looks at me that way with that kind of love past my faults changes everything about my attitude, everything about my experience of life. It changes my bones. But I will never be able to realize God's love just through law and justice alone because they're not made of the same stuff. We can only approach so far. At some point, you take the quantum leap. You wink out of existence over here, and you wink back into existence over here. It's that leap of faith where you don't know where you're going to land, but you just jump. You just go. You take the chance that this love actually exists, and you find out that it does. How do we do this? First step is we got to become aware of the bones that we can't see. we got to become aware of the unconscious thoughts, assumptions, and, and teachings that have accumulated since early childhood down in our unconscious and are really driving us. We have to realize that they're there, and then we need to face those bones head on. We got, and we got to become willing to break them. we got to become willing to let them go. Jesus said to the rich young man, you want to go further than you have through the law? You've kept the law your whole life. Great. But you know something's missing. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here asking me. You want to take a step further? Sell everything. Sell everything that you own. Give it away. Now you can come follow me. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to break our bones, reshape them? Are we willing to let go of the things that we think have kept us in place, surviving all these years? Face them head on. Become willing to let them go. We need to face the outrage of the elder brother in ourselves to admit that the elder brother is right legally and he's absolutely miserable at the same time. He 
He stands outside the party. He stands outside the celebration with his arms crossed. He will not go in. He will not enter in because he's right legally. And the father is wrong legally. Did everything wrong according to the law. Was too permissive. Was enabling. Was doing all the things that we say we're not supposed to do. And yeah, we need to obviously have boundaries in our relationships. But he's also perfectly and beautifully joyful. He loves at a level that transports him beyond these things. We have to come to believe that happiness and peace and kingdom are only possible in the unfairness of this micro love and allow ourselves to fall into an embrace that will never deserve but will never be denied us at the same time. If we are willing to allow that there's a different way to process, if we're allowing to go through the outrage and the disturbance of looking at a different way to view the things that we think is already settled science, then we have the first opening to be able to go where Jesus is trying to take us, into this place called kingdom where everything changes. Let's pray. Father, this is tough stuff. You know that. You have spent so much time trying to help us to navigate these waters. So much imagery, so many stories, examples, ways of looking at this so that we can see just a little bit further and let go of a little bit more that is limiting us. Help us to just stay on the process. Help us to be really vigilant about what offends us, where the resistances are, where the anger springs from, the resentment, the frustrations. Allow us to lean in there as a window to some of those unconscious thoughts, those bones down there that need to be broken up and need to be reprogrammed. Help us to stay. Give us the courage and the perseverance to stay on that task and to find you empowering us, encouraging us, guiding us at every turn as long as we're willing to see that you're here with us. Thank you for this throughout the process, Lord. Give us the desire to want more, to want more connection with you and with each other that will fuel this process as difficult as it may be. And thank you for your presence and your your constant attention. Never let us forget, Lord, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.